Listener Production. What does it feel like to be written out of history? How does it feel to survive an extraordinary and terrifying experience and never really get to tell your own story? And then to watch the event itself steadily fade from public memory? The Great Qantas Oaks of 1971 is a story like that. It was a big deal at the time for a short time. And then people moved on. No one died and they caught the bad guys. However, it remains one of the best confidence tricks of all time. Mr Brown, as the extortionist called himself, persuaded Qantas and the police that he'd planted a bomb in a Boeing 707 in Sydney bound for Hong Kong. He'd done no such thing, but still walked away with a $500,000 ransom. I recently worked on a TV documentary on the story, and I must confess, I'd never heard of it before this. Those who know the story are amazed that anyone would be unaware of it. Yet, I drew lots of blank stares when surveying my friend's knowledge of the half-million-dollar hoax, especially from those under 40. After the show went to air, I was contacted by passengers who'd been on the flight and I began to understand why the story of Qantas Flight 755 had become somewhat obscure. I'm at a park in Melbourne's inner north. I'm meeting five people from three Italian families, two of whom are related. They were all passengers on Flight 755 on May 26th, 1971. This group interview is fast turning into a picnic. He's recording to my food. We're Italian. I know. That's why I was laughing. In 1971, they were all children under the age of 14, travelling with their parents to Italy via Hong Kong. This is the first time they've all been in the one place since 1971. It's not quite a reunion. The two groups of travellers didn't actually meet on the plane. So sharing their experiences for this podcast proved a cathartic experience. Each one brought their own version of the story and how the hoax left its mark. Carmel and Nancy Guerra are sisters. Carmel's four years older. She found watching the television show was like having an out-of-body experience. I watched it and thought, no, that's not me. I literally had a feeling of I was watching something else and it wasn't me because I don't talk about it very often. If I have... It's so much in the past, being in my late 50s now, so I think I probably shut it out a bit too. Sister Nancy was just six years old at the time of the hoax. That night, I could not sleep. I tossed and turned. Ever since then, I've got to take Valium or I've got to take sleeping pills. Even just from flying from Melbourne to Adelaide, I've got to take something. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's all stemmed back to that. Because I couldn't understand why other people never had that fear. Tanina Guerra is a cousin to Carmel and Nancy on their father's side. I turned 13 the 12th of June, so what, two weeks oh, later. No. So I was actually older and I've had a completely different effect from you yeah, and you're right. only a couple of months yeah. younger than yeah. me. Well, that's right, exactly, because like I said, I've got a fear of flying. I do it because I obviously can't go anywhere, but I've got to take medication. And I thought that's what it must be from because, I mean, you're scared of flying totally, mm. Tanina. Mm. Carmel, you fly, all right, but I, mm. I've got to take pills. I've got to take Valium. I've got to take something all the time, Mm, mm, yeah. mm. This is what I was saying to Adam when we met. It's like, imagine if that happened now. Now. We weren't even offered counselling. No, definitely not. We didn't even get a phone call to saying, are you okay? And it's not until the years go by 
And then I went twice. So, you know, my parents once to Sydney, then one to Great Keppel. Oh, yeah, because you flew a few times and but then you then It was again. a nightmare. I couldn't. I yeah. was just, I, I was actually looking at everyone. I remember, especially males, if they had a suitcase, I'd freeze. Yeah. I didn't know that was post-traumatic stress. And then I couldn't do it anymore. I was so scared. I remember going to Sydney and I was just shaking. Adeline had to sit with me and hold my hand and mm. squeeze it. I had to talk the whole time. Yeah. And my eyes were shut and I was literally shaking. Yeah. I spoke to you about my ex-husband, Warren. He was yeah. so supportive. And when yeah. we got together, mm. I said to him, your mm. job takes you all over the world, yeah. interstate. <laughs> I'm not that trophy wife that's going to come with you at all. Go! Then there's the Leonardi family. Rita came for the picnic in the park, but I'd met the rest of her family, her mother Anna and younger brother Luigi, at their home earlier. When researching the TV show, we'd found a newspaper photograph of the Leonardis taken at Sydney Airport after the ordeal was over. So, Anna, where did you get that photo? The photo with Lou, Luigi? Yeah, it was in, a, it's in the Fairfax newspaper archives. Oh, right. oh, let me see if I can find Rita and Luigi. And it was this picture, and Rita looks really calm, yeah. and Luigi looks anything but. <laughs> He's got this face like, this is not what I expected. Well, and, and I thought to myself, the experience of the passengers is what really matters. And I think this gives it a whole nother dimension because yes. I think these days the passengers would be the focus. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Carmel Guerra has a theory about why Flight 755 was so easily forgotten. My um, day job is around multiculturalism and yeah. stuff. And okay. and you kind of look back at, you know, white Australia policy in the 70s, remember, yeah, we were right. all here. Yeah. You know, like the kind of racism our parents yeah, experienced. Yeah, parents. And we did. That's right. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, but because they were a bunch of wogs who didn't really speak English, whether it would have yeah. been different if it had been a group of oh, English going home, yeah. would there have been... I don't know, but my gut tells me, I bet you... Um, Cam, are you all right? It was just a plane full of wogs. Exactly. More than a million Australians today claim some Italian ancestry. It's the sixth largest ethnic group in the population... But when Italian migrants first came here after the Second World War, they were met with suspicion and racism from some quarters of society. My mum would make the ciabatta bread yeah, before right. it was fashionable. Yeah. And I'd have in it, you know, like maybe some cheese or some eggplant and some watermelon. I used to get the Aussies come and just flick it over and say, go home, you f- day go. I remember a classic story that mum used to always talk about when my dad went to fill up his car with petrol yeah. and someone... Yelled out to him, or went to his face and said to him, Go home, you wog, or something like that. Mm. My mum, being the feisty woman, got up out of the car <laughs> and said, At least I came with a suitcase, not in chains, like you did. <laughs> and in her English, like in our broken English, but that wow. person understood and yeah. literally left them alone from that time on. So, in that context, did. this trip. Oh, Back to mm. Italy was very oh, it's important. Huge. I'm not going to yes. say you didn't feel at home here, but there was reminders oh, that yeah. you were not oh, yeah. at home. My mum had no one here. That's why your mum and my mum were close. And that's why they wanted to go back. The journey began at Essendon Airport in Melbourne. The families took a flight to Sydney, where they would board Flight 755 to Hong Kong. According to the passengers I spoke with, 90% on board were Italians returning home for holidays. Another young man of Italian background also had an interest in QF 755. Peter Macari was a small-time English crook with a chequered past. He'd skipped bail on a charge of indecent assault in Britain and come to Australia on a false passport in 1969. Macari had plunged his life savings into a boat-building business in Sydney, 
but that failed. So he set off to explore Australia in a camper van. During this trip, he hatched a plot that literally came straight out of Hollywood. This is a very special flight on its way toward a date with destiny. In 1966, Rod Serling of Twilight Zone fame made a film called The Doomsday Flight. It told the story of an extortionist who'd planted a bomb on a US airliner. It was a barometric bomb that was detonated by changes in atmospheric pressure. The bomb was set to explode once the plane descended below 5,000 feet. Fly with a hundred lives suspended in space, attempting to outdistance death. The pilot foiled the plot by landing the plane at Denver Airport in Colorado, 5,280 feet above sea level in the Rocky Mountains. Macari, calling himself Mr Brown, called Qantas at Sydney Airport with a chilling threat. Well, there was a discussion about uh, was it a hoax or not. John Ulm, now 96 years of age, was Qantas public relations manager on that day. The memories of that day are still vivid. But you see, he was very clever because he'd picked a flight of nine hours, Sydney, Hong Kong, non-stop. In other words, he'd calculated that would give us time to think about it, you know, very clever. And then, then he said, now, to prove it's a barometric bomb, if you go to Locker, whatever the number was, out at the airport, you'll find a, a similar bomb. So the security people went out, not just ours, I mean, you know, army and police and stuff. Uh, they went out to this locker and they established the other bomb was, yes, a workable barometric bomb. Captain William Selwyn, in command of QF755, got the message at 1.30pm, not long after leaving Sydney, with 116 passengers, four air crew and eight cabin crew aboard. Selwyn was cool and calm with a wealth of aviation experience. He'd flown Wellington bombers over Europe and North Africa during the war. Once on a submarine bombing raid, his plane developed a mechanical fault and Selwyn told the crew to bail out while he tried to save the aircraft. They refused, backing their captain. Selwyn landed safely but slew across the tarmac and collided with another aircraft that had just arrived with the base's entire supply of alcohol for Christmas. Until May 26, 1971, this had been his best flying story. Selwyn was flying at 35,000 feet over Dolby, Queensland at the time. He was ordered to stay above 20,000 feet while Qantas management worked out what to do next. There were cool heads in Qantas' house. Put it this way, apart from the war, (laughs) my war, it was the most interesting day in my life. At 22, John Ulm was a dashing Spitfire pilot in the skies above war-torn Europe and later became a prisoner of war. I mean, you see, what we were doing as Spitfire pilots, we were either escorting a couple of hundred bombers at 32,000 feet to go and smash up some marshalling yard, you know. Well, at 32,000 feet, you can't escape the heavy flak and I was shot down by flak three in times spitfire. in the Spitfire. And the last time I crash landed, a beautiful, beautiful crash landing in northern Italy, not far north of Venice, you know. A large proportion of Qantas management had been Air Force flying operational people 
The staff manager was a flying boat pilot. The commercial manager was a Kitty Hawk fighter pilot. I was a Spitfire pilot. So, you know, I've often said, I was actually asked, oh, was there any panic? And I said, well, in the flying business, we don't do panic. If you panic in the flying business, you're dead. So the Qantas bosses were cool, but they didn't have many options, and Macari was writing the script. In the Doomsday film, the pilot landed at a high-altitude airport above the height that would trigger the bomb. So Macari rewrote the story, raising the bar from 5,000 to 20,000 feet. The highest airport that could take a 707 within the plane's fuel range was Canberra Airport, and that strip was only 1,800 feet above sea level. If there was a bomb on QF-755, there was no way to land without a catastrophe. Of course, there was one factor that suggested that there was no bomb on board. QF-755 had passed 20,000 feet after takeoff from Sydney, and nothing had happened. It was possible the bomb had a timing device that could have activated the barometer once it reached cruising altitude. But Macari had put an identical device in the airport locker and that bomb had no timer. What Qantas could not know was whether an accomplice posing as a passenger had smuggled the bomb on board and had manually activated a device. Of course, that meant the accomplice was on a potential suicide mission. This was not a moment to gamble, so the only viable option was to find the bomb and somehow disarm it. And Selwyn's crew had about five and a half hours worth of fuel to do it. The passengers were oblivious to all this, and many were enjoying the excitement of their first flights. And the food. Carmel Guerra. Remember how exciting it was to get food served on a plane was pretty interesting, that concept, you know, because food's important to Italians. So what was the first sign for you that things were going a bit wrong? Well... We're in the air and all I can remember then is, and this is one of the vivid memories I have, of these air hostesses rushing up and down the aisle the whole time, you know, trying not to look alarmed but obviously we're alarmed but trying to calm us down but we knew something was not right but, man, we never thought that. Rita Leonardi. Okay, the announcement came over but they asked us to check our uh, luggage, which was above. Um, They asked us, has anyone approached you? Especially there wasn't many children on that flight. So they approached my brother and myself asking if there was any anyone that gave some sort of parcel to us in hand, but they were very kind of, they wouldn't say much about what was going on. We were asked to look through our luggage and then they started slitting the, the seats, the front seats in front of us. Oh, and the carpet started And the pulling, carpet, everything. The, within a matter of... Broke everything. Yeah, within Broke a matter everything. of minutes... Um, there was really not much left of yeah. the plane. Luigi Leonardi. So I started crying because I started seeing oh. my sister and my mother that were upset. And so obviously at nine years old, that's what you do, right? <laughs> They're going hysterical. Everyone else on the plane started going hysterical. If the stewardess are panicking and the passengers are panicking, then every, all of a sudden Everybody it's just me. Nancy Guerra. And mum's going, you know, what's wrong? Is there a bomb, you know? And then like oh. the, the air host is kind of like... She didn't want to say anything. She was just looking and I was just saying, oh, um, don't worry, don't worry. And Mum goes, there's a bomb. There's something going on here, you know, because it's not right. I'm sorry, we worked it out. It was a bomb. We might be Italian, but you know what I'm saying? No, no, of course. Air hostess says we might have a plane full of walks here that don't speak English, but we know what's going on. (laughs) The later reporting of the drama at 35,000 feet 
did not capture quite the same mood. The 116 passengers on flight 755 to Hong Kong, blissfully unaware of the danger they were in, were told they were returning to Sydney because of a technical fault. Circling high above Sydney, Captain Bill Selwyn and his Qantas crew were trying to find a bomb they believed was somewhere on his aircraft. Selwyn raised the cabin pressure in the Boeing 707 to the equivalent of 22,000 feet above sea level to make searching easier. Most aircraft cabins are pressurised to 8,000 feet above sea level, so the oxygen masks were deployed for the passengers, what the pilots call the rubber jungle. This moment increased the terror for the passengers. To make matters worse, Carmel Guerra and her cousin Tonina were taken away from their parents before the oxygen mask descended. Nancy Guerra. Yeah, because you had to have two adults between a child. Like, you could not have, and my parents had the two of us, and these two adults I went to, they took me to the front of the plane. Because I remember we were in the middle, my mum wouldn't let me go, she was hysterical, they were trying to calm her down, and obviously, because... You know, as we all were children, yes, we were the translators. And I remember sitting, I'm going forward and sitting with this couple. And I remember the difference. This couple were incredibly warm, nurturing, looking after me. And I don't think they were Italian. And they were talking to me and holding my hand. And when the masks came down and they said that big thing, I couldn't breathe. And they were telling me, breathe, breathe, breathe. Tanina Guerra again. I was taken away from my parents to go to the back of the plane to look after an elderly Italian woman that had no idea what was going on. So the air hostess must have connected this girl was bilingual. She can speak English, she can speak Italian. So I then left my parents in this mist of the unknown and a little bit of, you know, chaos to go at the back thinking, oh, my God, I've got to help this old woman here. Nancy Guerra. My image I've got of that is mum hysterical because they'd taken Carmel mm. away. I mean, my ears were about to blow up yeah, exactly. because the plane just dropped mm. and I felt my eardrums were going to blow up. So the parents are also mm. experiencing that. Of course. Not understand what's going on, but mind you, their daughters have been taken away mm. as well. That's right. Yeah. Tanina Guerra. And then I remember all we could see was water below us for a long, long time, for hours and hours and hours. And then at some point there was an announcement to saying that you know, we're circling because we need to get rid of the fuel, basically. Captain Selwyn circled the aircraft over Brisbane for three hours before returning to Sydney to do the same for another two and a half hours. Meanwhile, Macari was calling Qantas every hour, negotiating the payment of the ransom. There was only one consideration, the safety of the people on board. The money as money didn't matter. A half a million might have sounded a lot of money, but Qantas was a multi, multi-million dollar operation anyway, so in terms of the money, it didn't really matter whether it was a million or two million or it was only one issue, and that was the safety of the people on board. At 5.45pm, Macari pulled up outside Qantas' house in a stolen van, and Qantas' general manager, Bert Ritchie, handed over the cash in two suitcases. Ritchie had given his police minders the slip, so there was no chance of Macari being apprehended, and he drove away unhindered. At 6.10pm, Macari rang Qantas. Three minutes later, his message was relayed to Captain Selwyn, which I've recreated with actors. We've been advised there is nil, repeat, nil bomb. 
Please advise your cabin altitude and aircraft altitude. Selwyn betrayed no tension or relief. Roger, cabin altitude 11,000 feet, aircraft altitude 22,000 feet, stable at 22,000 feet. Of course, it wasn't over. Selwyn now had to get his aircraft on the ground, through the dreaded 20,000 feet level that Makari had nominated in his threat. Fortunately, Makari was as good as his word. In Rod Serling's The Doomsday Flight movie, the relieved passengers broke into spontaneous applause. It was quite different on board QF755 on landing. Um, when they started clapping, you know, that was a part of the, the movie. I remember that we were crying and the people that were near us were crying, um, you know, and I don't know if it was a cry of joy or cry of they knew that it was a bomb. These were different days and the airline believed its job was done getting the aircraft to the ground safely. We made sure that they weren't just left on their own and offered a glass of water. They might have been offered a gin and tonic or even a scotch and soda. Lashing out with the taxpayer dollar there. Well they done. might have even been offered a scotch and soda. From your private stash. <laughs> Qantas staff did give the exhausted passengers a choice of whether they wanted to continue their travels. We can put you up for the night and send you home or we can put you on the next flight going. And I remember my dad and my uncle went off and had a conversation without us around. And I remember them coming back saying, we've decided we're going on. I think Tanina's mum didn't want to. I can't remember whether my mum wanted to or not. Maybe she didn't want to either. But they both said, no, because if we don't continue now, we may never go back again. Like I can't remember whether I wanted to or not. I can't even remember now. But I now reflect and said to dad, how did you ever make that decision? And he, that's what he said to me. He said, if we didn't hop back on that plane, I knew it was unlikely we would ever get back on a plane again. Rita Leonardi can't remember being given any option. Rita Leonardi again. Basically, when, I when like mum, come back. Yeah, mum wanted to go back to Melbourne, she wanted to continue her flight. And uh, when she went to the office, they just said to her, you're the only one that wants to go back to Melbourne. Everybody else wants to continue yeah. the flight. Oh, well, my mum said that they won't let me go back to Melbourne. We have to continue with the flight. Carmel Guerra again. We were saying that we actually have never and should have written this story when we were much younger because... You know, not only do we have that bomb scare, so we survived that, got back on the plane. Then we get to Rome. There's obviously no one there to pick us up. We ended up in a hotel that my dad and my uncle found and nearly got burgled. But, you know, considering my dad and my uncle were pretty much country folk from a small town in Benevento, Italy, and arrived in Australia, when they land back in Rome for the first time, they knew their fellow countrymen and knew that we were being scammed. So, you know, we ran for the hills. So, you know, that was momentous in itself because we were exhausted, you can imagine, after being on that flight. It's not like now. So we were exhausted and we just went and hung out at the train station. We slept at the train station. Then we get to Benevento about a three or four hour train trip. So we stayed at my maternal grandparents' house. I still remember my um, grandfather coming to greet us. He was so excited to see his granddaughters from Australia, took us to buy an ice cream, you know, all that kind of excitement of seeing. Because remember, we had no grandparents because they were all in Italy. And then, unfortunately, the day after, over lunch, my um, grandfather died at the kitchen table while we were eating. You know, I can still remember it because my um, dad went over and he didn't let us go in and then we did, of course, and he died in front of us. Had a, heart, a sudden heart attack. 
You must be thinking, Thomastown sounds good. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, that was enough. And then the whole morning, can you imagine, like 10 and dealing with the whole morning, like there is a whole process that goes. Fortunately, my father's side of the family took my sister and I out to the farm. So we stayed there most of the time. So I have really vivid memories of them looking after us, taking us on the tractor. And then to make things worse, to be honest, it just gets worse. My dad had really bad stomach pain. They had to drive him to the hospital and his appendix burst. They said that if he had not got to the hospital, he would have died. Like He was within a couple of hours of dying. When our passengers finally got home, they felt like they'd seen enough drama for a lifetime. And I realised talking to them that watching the documentary would have brought back all those memories from those childhood minds. I know, that's what's weird. When we watched the doc, I went, oh my God, I can't believe this piece of history that we were part of. And we were completely oblivious. And even when we really landed and went on, we didn't fully understand, to be honest. When I reflect back, and even when we come back to Australia, I'm going, geez, we weren't offered counselling like I'm going. The whole system, what we went through, no wonder my poor cousin Tanina's got the issue she's got. I don't know how I've turned out sound. I don't know about the other people you're speaking to that we're high functioning citizens going after we went through because the PTSD we must have suffered. And what about the villain of the story, Peter Macari, the Qantas hoaxer? He seemed to be amazed that he got away with this. He seemed to have no plan beyond a wild spending spree in Sydney, buying exotic cars for his friends and several properties. He was picked up by police three months later and ended up serving nine years in jail for the hoax before being deported back to England on a Qantas jet. Only about half of Qantas's money was ever recovered. Macari was also linked to the disappearance of a travelling companion in Australia in 1969 before the hoax and also the possible murder of his own brother back in England years before. However, Macari committed suicide in 2013 without ever revealing his secrets. In part two of The Great Qantas Hoax, I speak to a former airline pilot about how such a bomb threat would be handled if it happened today. If you'd like to learn more about this story, you can check out my documentary, The Money or the Bomb, on Australian Crime Stories at ninenow.com.au. The producer was Sarah Grinberg. Mixing, editing and theme music by Matt Nikolic. Executive producer, Grant Tothill. This has been a real crime production. Written and produced by Adam Shand. Listener.